Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started with Jasper. Jasper is a JPEG 2000 library. What on earth is JPEG 2000? I don't know, nobody knows. JPEG.org, that's the home of JPEG. JPEG.org slash JPEG 2000 tells us that JPEG 2000 is the Swiss army knife of image codecs. It supports lossy and lossless encoding, up to 16,384 components, bit depth up to 38 bits per sample, terapixel images, resolution and quality availability, progressive decoding and subframe latency, region of interest accessibility, non-iterative optimal rate control, and more. So JPEG 2000 was, as, as you might sort of glean from its name, it was meant to be the, sort of the, the as I recall, it was meant to be the image format to to end image formats, you know? It was like, it was JPEG 2000. Like, it was going to be everything to all people. And from this description, it sounds like it, it kind of, it kind of is. Like, it, this, this sounds exciting to me, actually. There are some features here that, that seem pretty interesting. The, I think, and, and so there's, I mean, there's a lot of parts to JPEG 2000. You can go to jpeg.org slash JPEG 2000 and, and read all about it if you want. But I think the, the, the end, the, you know, the story kind of ends with the fact that you have to go to jpeg.org slash JPEG 2000 to find out what it is. I mean, you, you may have, you know, I'm making assumptions here. You may have heard of it. You may have, you might know what JPEG 2000 is. You might be using it. Who knows? Um, but generally speaking, it just didn't take off for whatever reason. And I don't know the reason. I don't understand how these things do or don't take off. I'm assuming someone needs to adopt these things. And I guess for whatever reason, nobody adopted it. And I don't know the reason. I don't know why. Did, did Windows and Mac just not decide to implement this in their OSs, and presumably that would have been the thing to trigger, you know, popularity. Although, arguably, maybe, maybe we could blame, like, Firefox or something. Maybe Firefox didn't implement it in, did they? Let's, let's look if they've implemented it yet. Uh, here's a JPEG 2000. I'm gonna try to open with Firefox, and, um, doesn't really appear to want to open in Firefox. It might not, it might not be opening or possibly Firefox is just trying to second guess what I'm trying to do. I feel like it's been doing that lately a lot, uh, where I try to open something and it acts like I'm trying to download it again. So I don't know. I think my, my settings must be, um, not optimal for just opening random files in my browser, which I mean, admittedly, I don't normally want to do anyway. So, um, whatever reason, like JPEG 2000, I, I think it's safe to say it didn't really take off. I mean, we're, it, it, it really, you know, most people just use JPEG or PNG and that's it. And, and then sometime in like, you know, 20, I don't know, 10, 20, nah, 13 or 14, uh, WebP came out. Uh, I think WebP was supported by Google, potentially, possibly, and uh, it's just such a great format. Now, I don't know how it compares feature for feature with, 2000, uh, with JPEG 2000, but I do know that it 
it, it's quite good at what it does. And uh, it's there, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of organizations out there that are using WebP as like not just the format for images like on the internet and stuff, but as, as like archival, an Im- image format for archived uh, images. So it, it, it's pretty darn good. I'm, I'm quite the fan of WebP. Now, again, I don't know how it compares feature for feature for, with JPEG 2000. I don't even know how it compares with like compression algorithms or anything like that. I've not looked into any of these things that deeply the way I usually find myself reading up on video compression. I, I just, I don't, for whatever reason, I, I'm not as fascinated by image, image compression. I, I don't know why I should be. Um, but WebP is quite nice. I, I use it all the time. I prefer it even. And, uh, here's some, here's the, from the JPEG, no, from the Jasper site, which is www.ece.uvic, like University of Victoria.ca slash tilde tilde frodo slash jasper that's the home of 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 jasper and and jasper is a jpeg 2000 library for linux they have two sample images on their site from like 2002 you download them and admittedly for 2002 these are big files cats.pnm which is a picture of cats is six megabytes and water which is a picture of water is two 0.8 0.8 megabytes. So they're not really very small images. Compressing cats down to a we- with WebP, just a straight convert cats.pnm, cats.webp with image magic. I covered what previous episode or previous previous episode um, brings that same image down to 471 kilobytes. We have 472 kilobytes from six megabytes to not even a megabyte. That's a lot of compression. And I know I'm, I'm going from a compressed file to more compressed. I'm losing quality, all those other concerns. But I feel confident that side by side, a JPEG 2000 and a WebP uh, codec, it's going to have similar results. You're going to find that the JPEG 2000 is a lot larger than the WebP version. Is it going to look as good? I mean, obviously that's perceptual, that's subjective. You have to look and decide for yourself. I think, I, I don't detect a, a remarkable difference. In, in fact, I mean, again, I know I'm compressing a compressed image here, but if if I look at cats.pnm and cats.webp in a really good image viewer like Geek, what is it, Geeky? Is that how you say it? G-E-E-Q-I-E? I love this one because if you if you open up an image in it and then you control click and scroll really close to the image so you can see detail, then you can switch over on the sidebar, you can swap which image you're looking at and it loads that image in the same without resetting your viewport. It's amazing. I mean, that's even if you just go to some other random image. Um but it's just so useful for flipping back and forth between and you can do it with arrow keys. Just go up and down on the, you know, back and forth between the cats, one image and the other. And I mean, really, and just focus on, you know, whatever portion of the image you think is is important. And there's really not, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, I see a little bit of a difference, but I honestly can't tell between the two, like, what's better versus just what's different. So yeah, it's a tough call. And, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm going to just say I don't see a difference. So there's that. So yeah, I don't know. Is JPEG uh, 2000 a thing? I don't. I don't think so. Maybe it is. Maybe somewhere it is. But I. I don't think it's really taken off. But I think it's important to to have support for legacy image formats. And I guess legacy, you know, JPEG 2000, for lack of adoption, is legacy because I would really hate to have 
tried JPEG 2000 at some point, and then to suddenly realize that none of my systems can read that image. That would be the the worst experience. Jasper helps ensure that that isn't something that happens. Now, here's an interesting thing if you want to you want to try it. Go to um go to your terminal and just do a hex dump dash dash. No, just do a hex dump actually. Do a hex dump and then open up a JPEG 2000 image if you want or a JPEG image if you prefer. Whatever, it doesn't really matter. Or you can just imagine you're doing it cuz really there's no there's no happy ending to this story. It's just it's open that up and then ask yourself, how would I translate what I see there into an array of pixels? And that's the kind of thing that Jasper uh, helps people do. So if you're programming and you want to display a picture that that is JPEG 2000, Jasper is going to be an easy way to do that because it knows how to speak JPEG 2000. You don't have to figure that out. J.E. Malloc. Let's talk about J.E. Malloc. J.E. Malloc is Jason Evans's memory allocator. That's what Malloc stands for if you've ever heard Malloc. If you read the kernel uh, development logs or or listen to programmers talk about programming... You're gonna eventually hear about malloc. It's it stands for memory allocator. That's malloc, mem- memory allocator. Uh, and it's and JE malloc is a general purpose scalable concurrent malloc implementation. So what does malloc? What what does memory allocation mean? Well, it it means you know pretty much what it says on the tin. I mean it's it is all about allocating memory. Uh, and in this in this case like for C code you pretty much have to do that yourself you have to allocate or you can allocate memory with malloc um and then you free it up with free which i think in the json sample we were doing that a little bit if you'll recall we would create a very a pointer we would put something into it and then when we were done with it we would call free and free that back up as kind of a cleanup task but you know what repetition breeds familiarity so let's just do a it's a nine line code not a big deal actually it might be eight lines i just can't remember where a certain macro is de- is defined so i'm going to just use both so hash include standard lib.h or rather uh, bracket angle bracket standard lib.h close angle bracket, hash include angle bracket standard io dot h angle bracket, hash include angle bracket je malloc, that's the library being demonstrated here, slash je malloc dot h. Now, I know that that exists in that location for a couple of reasons. One is I could do most on var log packages je, je malloc and there's only like 10 items in this uh, package, and some of them, or, or one of them is user include jemalloc, jemalloc.h. There's also the compiled library in slash usr slash lib64 slash libjemalloc.so.2. Now there's also a, a binary application here called jemalloc-config. So if I go to a terminal and just run jemalloc config it gives me a helpful help menu and it tells me i can look around i i can discover where je malloc is located by you know different components of it by different options so je malloc dash config space dash dash include dir 
would it tells me it's in user include so if you didn't know <laughs> you could look in in user include to find where je malik is and you'd discover that it's in je malik and so on if you weren't sure about where the libdir was you could je malik dash config dash dash libdir and it's telling you Oh, it's in slash USR slash lib64. So that's kind of a useful thing to know, I guess. Um, so that's how I knew that jemalloc slash jemalloc.h was the thing that I needed to include in order to use this uh, these functions. Okay, so we'll start with int main parentheses parentheses curly brace, and then we'll do an int space asterisk string semicolon string equals malloc parentheses path underscore max that's all capital path underscore max is a macro defined either by standard lib or standard io it's got to be standard lib right i mean why would it be standard io and yet i'm not sure either way it's a macro defined by one of those and it contains the maximum uh size of the path of a file path so it's just a nice random well not random but it's, I needed a value, and I could have just created a variable and so on, but this, this exists. This is a macro that exists. And this is not a, this is not a very uncommon, like, you may need to know this sort of thing in C, because you don't want to write an application that's going to provide or, or try to take path names that exceed a certain amount, and then you'll have a buffer overflow and all, all kinds of bad things will happen. Um, or at least you'll have sloppy code. So that's not completely unheard of. Um, so path underscore max, close parentheses, semicolon. Print F, this is just for feedback. This is just to, to help us have the illusion that something's happening in this application. I mean, something is happening. It's just not very impressive. Parentheses, quote, um, allocated memory for path max. And then let's look at the value, which would be, um, what would it be? Percent D, delta, backslash in, close, quote, comma, um, string parentheses semicolon because that's what we called our our path max okay so at that point because string equals malloc path max that was allocating the memory for path max we have told ourselves that we've done that so really all there is left to do in this very very basic application is free the string so free parentheses string close parentheses semicolon and then um i i think that's really it semicolon so that's not even that's like eight lines of code and and it's going to be accordingly as impressive as eight lines of code as you can imagine it would be which is to say not very so um, i'm saving that as maltest.c and then i'm going to go out to the terminal jcc-o i'll call it mtest and just to make sure i'll do a dash capital i slash usr slash include slash je malloc so we know where we're including files from dash l lowercase l je malloc so that's telling it to look for that libjmalloc.so dot whatever. And then the source, of course, is maltest.c. And then I'll just press return and it compiled really fast because it's a really simple application. LDDM test. I'm oh, I just hit some secret keyboard combination. I, I had to cut the recording so you don't know this, but I did. I'm telling you now. I hit some magical keyboard combination that did some kind of KDE thing where it over it overrided, overrode my just it just turned on the caps lock key. Like I don't use caps lock. It's a it's mapped to a control key, but I hit something when I was going for control C, I think. I hit something and it activated like this software-based caps lock within KDE. I'd never seen anything like it before. I had to hunt 
hunt it down and and turn it and deactivate it. It was really weird. I don't know what I hit, but it took me several minutes to do that. So where was I? Um. Oh yeah, I was doing. Uh, oh, and then when I came back to Audacity to re- continue to record, I somehow started the next track at 48 kilohertz, uh, and my recording device is set to 44.1. So. I played back the last 10 minutes of me talking, saying basically the same thing that I'm saying now, except I sounded very fast, very sped up, like a little chipmunk type voice. So that that was really weird, but I have tested now. I think I should sound normal, and I'm back. And mtest, LDD mtest, or dot slash mtest anyway, uh, renders exactly what I would hope w- would hope for, which is that, yes, it is using JE malloc, so we're not using... Any other malloc, we're using J.E., Jason Evans's malloc, and then mtest does exactly what it's supposed to do, allocates memory and then frees that memory back up. Not very impressive, and I think I've done some conversion, some type conversion wrong, because that looks like a a very large number uh, for the path max. I don't think that could possibly be correct. Surely not. That's huge. Um... So I must have done something wrong there. It was probably, it didn't really think too hard about that. So anyway, it doesn't matter. Malak, it worked. It freed memory. And in C, that's the kind of thing you're doing sometimes. You know, you have to manage your own memory in C. Other programming languages just kind of do that for you. You don't have to worry about it, which is nice. But I mean, I guess, or it's nice to me. I guess some people prefer to have just that that very you know, the very granular, very detailed control over everything that they're doing. And that's great for them, but that is not me. In programming, I would much rather magical functions just happen for me, and and, and I don't want to think about it. Uh, and and you know, I fully am aware that, that that's why I'm not, for instance, a kernel programmer. You know, I, I like that kind of... That kind of detail does not interest me for whatever reason in in programming. In lots of other places it does, but not here. I don't know why. Um, And and so that's the kind of thing that I don't find super enjoyable in in C. So that's malloc, or that's J-E malloc anyway. Uh, Next up is J-M-T-P-F-S. I don't... uh, The J... Well, no, actually the J in this one I think is for the person's name as well. Jason uh, Ferrara. Uh, Jason Ferrara's uh, MTP file system is essentially JMTPFS. MTP is the media transfer protocol or something like that. Um, it's used for media transfer protocols. Is that what I said? It's used for uh, mobile devices. So you'll you may have seen MTP mentioned when you're I don't know trying to get your Android phone to connect with your computer. You might see that there's an MTP option, and that's a, a specific protocol that sometimes computers look for when trying to mount a device as a file system. So I'm going to plug my phone in here, and I'm sure nothing will work. Not because of JMTPFS, not because of Linux, not because of anything. It's just that the phone is pretty old and doesn't always recognize a cable when it's plugged in, uh, even to charge. So that's always a fun sort of routine that I go through every day. Uh, no, it's, it's not working. USB debugging is activated on the phone, uh, but it's it's just not showing up. So anyway, with a, with a phone that works, you could uh, use JMTPFS to mount the phone as a, as a storage uh, device, essentially. You just do JMTPFS and the path to where you want to mount the thing, and it, it, you know, assuming that your computer and your phone are actually talking to each other, and your phone 
has USD debugging or is in MTP mode or whatever needs to happen, then JMTPFS mounts that the the phone in your in the directory you specified, and then you can see the internal storage and the SD card and so on. And and that package is just the command. It's JMTPFS. That's that's what's in the package. It's not a library or anything like that. It's, I don't really know why this is in the L section. To be honest, it feels really more like it should just be in the X or not the X the uh, apps, the A, the A section, I guess. That's a weird one. Well, you know what's not weird is coffee. You should go get some. I'll go get some. We'll come back, finish up the show. coffee. I am drinking McKinsey's coffee again. You know, it's funny. I mean, this counts as listener feedback, right? On Mastodon, my friend Claudio was talking about how how nice it was to go get some coffee every time that my coffee break music plays, which I appreciate. And I assume everyone is doing. Um, I mean, that's we don't do these coffee breaks as drills. You're supposed to go get coffee or a drink of your choice during them. Then the uh, then someone else chimed in and was saying uh, it was I think Ephraim. Uh, where's Ephraim? I don't know where Ephraim went. Yeah, Ephraim. I don't know why I'm not seeing that response now. Oh, there he is. Okay, Ephraim says one of these days I'm gonna go pay through the nose for some flight coffee. I've been convinced it's worth trying. And while I sympathize with you know, I mean, I do mention flight coffee a lot, so I sympathize. But don't don't actually do that anybody like i mean not that flight coffee doesn't deserve your money or anything but i mean they're in new zealand believe me it would cost probably 50 to 70 dollars to ship a kilogram bag of coffee to yourself from new zealand it is just it you, it's weird because it's 2023 and you think i mean like i don't know you think hopping across the world just isn't that big of a deal people are doing it like every day but it's still it's it costs it really does it's a very costly venture so don't don't get don't order flight coffee for yourself because the flight to get flight coffee to you is not cheap probably so just find a good a good coffee that's you know relatively local to where you are have a cup of that and report back i mean that's what claudio m did he um sent me a a picture of the bag that he's getting from the from the grocery store ferraris is what it's called which i mean to be honest is he just drinking that because of the name ferrari mocha italia looks good looks really really good i mean it's a bag <laughs> it's a bag what it, it looks good it's a bag of coffee it looks good but i mean you know it does look good i mean i would try it heck Absolutely, I would try that. So anyway, that was the listener feedback, such as it was. I think that counts. Uh, next in line here is, uh, now I've gotten off track onto like Mastodon and stuff. Where, where's this actual, actual list of packages? Here we go. All right. Next after J.E. Malloc is, um, no, we're not on J.E. Malloc anymore. We're on JMTPFS. After JMTPFS is JSON-C. I think I feel like we kind of talked about JSON already. 
I mean, we haven't talked about JSON.C, but I still feel like we've talked about JSON. I, I raved about it in the previous episode or so, and I think we're done. JSON-C implements a reference counting object model that allows you to easily construct JSON, that's JavaScript object notation, objects in C, output them as JSON formatted strings, and parse JSON formatted strings back into the C representation of JSON objects. In other words, it reads and writes JSON. It says it aims to conform to RFC 7159, which I'm going to have to assume is the RFC that defines JSON, maybe? I don't know. Probably. that That's probably what it is. Okay, and then the next one after that is JSON-glib, which is um, probably the JSON library uh, parser and generator using glib and gobject. And you'll recall that glib and gobject are uh, GNOME-related concepts. Like gobject is the uh, sort of bringing objects into the, the, the C programming language for the GNOME framework. Glib is, um, I don't know, I, we went through it, I just don't remember what it is. Uh, it's a bunch of data types, I think, for C, right? Isn't that what that is? But anyway, that's um, that's JSON-Glib, so you've got more JSON there. As you can see, JSON's kind of a popular, popular thing, I guess. Uh, and then up next is Judy. Judy is a sparse dynamic array library and you can probably imagine that I don't understand what that means and you'd be right. Judy is a C library that provides a state-of-the-art core technology that implements a sparse dynamic array. A Judy array consumes memory only when it is populated, yet can grow to take advantage of all available memory if desired. Judy's key benefits are scalability, high performance, and memory efficiency. So that does, you have to admit, sound pretty uh, enticing. That's pretty cool. If you go to judy.sourceforge.net, you can read all about it. There's really, really good documentation there, like really good. Um, I mean, it's a little bit weird because it's the documentation, a lot of it is just like almost like academic papers or something, or at least they're saved in PDF, which I assume means they're academic papers. So they're a little bit strange. Uh, no, it's not documentation. Sorry. It's the examples that are, that are like academic papers. So that was a little bit strange, but I mean, it, it's a, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's good. It's good stuff. It, it demonstrates quite a lot about the, the, the library, especially if you, like me, don't really understand what this is even dealing with. Uh, so I'm going to do a jud.c and paste in one of these, uh, one of these little, one of these sample applications here. And it, it is, it, I, I said it was weird because it's this like paper and it's saved as a PDF. So you have to like go in and like try to copy the code without copying like the footers and the headers. It is not, not, not terribly convenient. It is, I dare say, inconvenient, but you can do it. It, it does work. And interestingly, if you get a stray header in there, it, it still, it still compiles and runs. It's really weird. I accidentally, I mean, I guess because it's, you know, it amounts to like HTTP colon and then slash slash, of course, is the C comment. So everything after that would be ignored. I just don't know how, why you can just 
insert an HTTP colon in C code and, and still compile it. I'll try it again in a minute. Okay, so here's the, the jud.c code. Uh, gcc jud.c does not work. It fails uh, because of a bunch of... It, it, it doesn't know where Judy is. So uh, what I'll do is we'll do a, a gcc-i slash usr slash include slash something. I don't actually know. I don't know where this stuff is either. So I guess I'll do a most var log packages slash Judy. Uh, I accidentally did jed instead. Common mistake. Judy. There we go. Um, lots of stuff here. Judy.h with a capital J. And then libjudy with a capital J. So that's that's tricky. That's very tricky. So include slash... Well, I think that should be enough, or no? Let's let's try just saying no. I th that should be enough, right? And then dash l lowercase j, uh, no lowercase l, but a capital J lib Judy. There, that compiled. Okay, so now if we just do an dot slash a dot out, uh, it says begin storing uh, ten thousand random numbers in a Judy scalable hash array. Insertion of 10,000 indexes took 0.915 microseconds per index. Retrieval of those indexes takes 0.04 microseconds per index. So it's very fast. I mean, I don't know what we're inserting or retrieving, but th that's what it does. And it is very fast. It doesn't take any time at all. Uh, 10,000 is a big number no matter what. Now, there is a note somewhere here in the yeah here it is so d dash capital d hash size equals 256 so i think i need to recompile it with that because i forgot about that so gcc dash d hash size equals 256 dash capital i user include dash capital no dash lowercase l capital judy uh and then jud c there we go let's try this again see if that has changed anything uh yeah it has changed things. So this time insertion of 10,000 indexes only took 0.128 microseconds. So that's down 0.8 microseconds almost. And the retrieval of it take took 0.064 microseconds up, up, uh, up rather, uh, at 0 0.02 microsecond. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know what any of it means, but it is a thing that you can do uh, with this library. I mean, I know what an array is on, on a very superficial level, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this code, which, um, which is, for the record, dash wc-l jud.c, 67 lines of code, one of those, at least one of those lines is a comment because that was the one about the d hash size equals 256. Yeah, there are a couple of comments. Oh, there are quite a few comments actually. So we're probably looking at like, um, and, and it uses white space pretty, pretty freely, I would say. Um, you know, I mean, it makes it readable in other words. So I would probably say more like 60 lines of code, let's say. Now I wanted to really quick try to just paste in this random footer that I'd accidentally caught in an earlier test, and it still compiled. And I don't know why it would have done that, but, I mean, it did. I, I'm sure it did. So I'm I'm pasting it in right right above uh, asterisk p value plus equals one semicolon, because that's where I'm pretty sure it was. So it's http colon slash slash, and then like I say, right after the slash slash, everything becomes a comment, and trying it again, and this time it fails. Okay, so I must have, maybe I didn't have it in there, maybe that came in, I don't know, I mean it was there, I swear it was there, but it, it definitely doesn't understand 
on line 64, it's it bails out. It just doesn't understand what I'm trying to get it to do. Well, I mean, in a way, that's comforting, because that's what I would expect. Okay, so I've removed that now, and uh, it compiles, so we're good to go. So that's Judy. It's making arrays. It's making arrays quickly, and does so without having to take all of the, m the memory before it actually needs the memory, which to me seems really, really cool. Like, that's, um, that's like, you know, that's like Java-level advanced stuff in C or Python level advanced stuff or whatever. And and I say that very flippantly, having no idea how Python or Java work. It's just I know it's magic and that's cool. And Judy seems rather magical to me. Well like that. It, it looks like the same kind of magic to me, in other words. And I'm realizing I forgot one of the cool things about J. E. Malloc. I the the one of the things that I wanted to I was specifically going to mention. So there's this there's this property malloc underscore conf equals stats print equals true that you can set when you're running something using JE malloc and you get all kinds of really really cool um output about like about how much memory has been uh, allocated and stuff like that. Well, I, I may. I think it might be worth just kind of going back to mtest really quick here and 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 seeing if that works. Okay, so here's mtest again. I've actually forgotten. I, I already got rid of it, and now I don't remember what it was. But I mean, it's include standard lib, include standard IOs, include JE malloc, and the uh, JE malloc.h, and then int main int string string equals malloc path max print f allocated free string return zero, right? I mean, that's basically it, uh, I think. And then I'll do a, G G a GCC, rather, GCC dash OM test, the include path, the lib path, and maltest.c. That seems to have worked. And then what did I say the, the magic string was? Something like this malloc underscore conf equals stats underscore print colon true that's colon true um and then oh wait i don't i don't do that during compiling m dot slash m test there we go yeah that's it wow that's so cool so if you if so when you're using je malloc if you set that prop that environment variable malloc underscore conf equals print uh, stats underscore print colon true and then you run the thing that is you know using je malloc and again you would want to kind of confirm that you're actually using je malloc so l ldd in this case dot slash m test just to make sure that je malloc dot so dot two shows up as a linked library and it does so it is you know this this is a this would be something that should work uh then you run malloc underscore malloc underscore conf equals stats underscore print colon true dot slash m test and you and the thing runs like your little application runs but you get all kinds of information about I mean, just everything. I mean, it's a, it's a screenfuls and screenfuls of, of numbers. Whether those numbers are important to you or significant to you depends on what your goal is. But you definitely get data about what was happening in your application when it ran, how much, how much memory was used, how much is, is, uh, free, how much is, is actually being used, how much has been purged, and so on. It's, it's very cool. Very, very neat. So try that if you do use JE malloc, because that was one of those features that just, just seemed really nice. You know, just really easy to get a lot of data about what's happening within the application. I'm not saying it's any, like, 
better or worse than what you could get out of Valgrind or GDB. You know, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can find out information about what's happening in an application. But that's just kind of interesting that it's specific to JE Malik. It 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 prints all those statistics and let you lets you have, gain insight into what exactly was happening when your little application ran. Those are all the J's. We're done. We're done with the J's. So the next um the next application is a K application. This one is KD Soap. It's a Qt based client and server SOAP SOAP component. KD Soap is a tool for creating client applications for web services. It also provides the means to create web services without the need for any further component such as a dedicated web server. It makes it possible to interact with applications which have APIs, that should have been that have, uh, applications that have APIs that can be exported as SOAP objects. The web service then provides a machine accessible interface to its functionality over HTTP. So what it's talking about here is that, um, actually I'm gonna take a drink of coffee is that you should be able to have a uh, an application that you've written in Qt, in this case, and and have it talk over the network, over HTTP, to some server, and, and then get information, you know, send information, get information back, update the, the, the state of the application, maybe update the state of the server, depends on what kind of communication we're talking about here. And that should be a reliable data stream. And, and it should be fast and, re- and quick and responsive. It shouldn't feel like you're talking over the network. It should feel like an application that you're using on your desktop. It, you know, there's, it should all be, it should feel integrated and, and snappy and all that other stuff. So this is XML-based uh, data messages, and it it just happens natively within the Qt framework. It's just talking to URIs that are over a network rather than to devices or to files on on disk. That's that's what this is for. That kind of that concept isn't totally new. I mean, if if you've ever played GNU Chess, you you're familiar with this concept of of a of a server, a chess server where people can interact and send signals of chess moves through a server to one another's application and 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 engage in a a turn-based game over a network and and that's it you know simple little signals in theory uh this is not probably so simple it's xml based it's it's quite verbose almost almost by nature i mean if it's xml it's verbose uh but but still it it is the same concept it's it's like what do we what kind of data do we have to send from one machine to another machine to sort of cause the application to progress in the way that the user wants it to go. KD, what is it? KD soap? KD, KD soap. Yeah, KD soap is, is one, one option for that kind of thing. And the nice thing about it, I think, is that it is cute based. So it, it's gonna go, it's gonna slot right into your little C++ KDE uh, framework, cute based application. No problem. There are other solutions for it as well. Like KDE, K, K, KD soap does not, is not the only thing doing it. I mean, like I just mentioned the chess one, but I mean, there are yet others. All right, Keybinder 3. That's a keyboard shortcut library for GTK Plus version 3. Keybinder is a library for registering global keyboard shortcuts. Keybinder works with 
GTK-based applications using the X-Window system. So this is a, a, a big topic for me. I, I'm really a fan of keyboard shortcuts, and the more global they are... Well, no, I shouldn't say that. The global ones are great, and the application-centric ones are great, and I love the idea of having very specific identifiers for each. Because I want my global keyboard shortcuts to be global. And this is something I've, I may have told this story before, mention it quickly here again just in case you missed it, or if I didn't actually talk about it, but I think I have. So back, I mean I know at some point I have. Anyway, Back, back on my old OS, way before I was using Linux, I was using Mac. That was, that was what I was born and bred on. And when I switched to Linux, it, it, it took me by surprise. Like, I really had to get used to a couple of different things. First of all, I had to get used to the idea that uh, the keyboard shortcuts were centered around the control key. Because on Mac OS, they have a special key called the uh, command key, and that's what the keyboard shortcuts are based around. And that's that's a thing that I had to get used to, because it felt like, if you look at a, a PC, you know, a non-Mac keyboard, um, it, it, you, you see that there is a Windows key on most of them, unless they're really, really cool and they have a penguin on that key instead. But generally, there's like that Windows keyboard thing. Mine actually, for the record, does not. It doesn't have a penguin, doesn't have a Windows it's got the Cooler Master logo, so there you go. Um, so the, you know, that super key, you'd think, oh, well, that's that's the equivalent of the command key, right? Well, no, it's not. I don't even know what that key is for, really. Honestly, I don't. Like on GNOME, it opens up the Applications menu, and I think, what do I have it mapped to here? Yeah, I have it mapped to the Application menu on my KDE box as well, just, I guess, because. Um, so I don't even know what that's for. So it really took me like ages to kind of get used to the idea that control was the the keyboard um, trigger, the, the keyboard shortcut trigger. And then I, I really had to get used to, never did get used to, the fact that you can do like Alt-F, for instance, to enter a file menu, or Alt-E for edit, Alt-S for select. I'm just reading the Audacity uh, menu here. But, you know, like I wasn't used to that. And that really threw me off because I, I thought, well, what is the alt key for? Is it literally just to trigger menus? And why do you need a whole key for that? That just seemed weird to me as well. So I was I was just not used to. And then the F keys at the top of the keyboard, the F1, F2, F2, I never had those. So I, I mean, I think Mac eventually got them, but nobody actually uses them on Mac. Or, or at least nobody I knew used them. And it just wasn't part of like the culture that I was familiar with I, I and I still don't to this day I don't really use them I mean I I use them for some things like but but mostly it's things that I've mapped them to do so I don't know it it took me a long time to sort of get used to the idea of these of how keyboard shortcuts worked on Linux so I started kind of developing my own keyboard shortcuts and really kind of configuring how I wanted my system to operate. And that was pretty easy to do at the time. I was running either Fluxbox or KDE, depending on which computer I was on. My laptop was Fluxbox, and I think the work computer was KDE. Uh, so it was it was kind of... I, I was able to really kind of figure out how I wanted to interact with my desktop and being able to define my own keyboard shortcuts kind of blew me away. Like that was an exciting idea. Here was a system where I could just, I could program it essentially. I mean, it's a selection and a set system settings menu, but I mean, still it, you're, you're essentially programming your computer to react to certain triggers that you send it. And so I would do things like launch Emacs with super E 
or switch desktops with super, I think it was, uh, what was I using? I was still on QWERTY at the time, so I was using, I think, W, E, and S, and D or something to switch between, like, a quadrant of four desktops with the super key. So I I really just abused the super key, because I thought, this is a free key. Nobody else is using this. I'm going to use it for all of my custom commands. And it was fantastic. And I, in my head, I thought, well, I have now, I have re-implemented what Mac OS had on their desktop because they had the command key and you could do all kinds of things with the command key. And that's what I've done here on Linux. And boy, isn't this great. Well, that's wrong. That is completely inaccurate. And I don't know how I got it into my head that that's what I'd done. But that was my thought process. But Mac OS does not do that with the command key. Mac OS does with the command key the exact same thing that everyone else does with the control key. It's just a different it's just a different key cap. They they don't have so in my head I thought Mac OS has a global only keyboard shortcut scheme centered around the command key. And once you get into applications, then there are like I don't know other keyboard shortcuts? That's dumb. That doesn't actually exist. I don't know where I got that in my head. I guess because there are, on occasion, some Mac applications will have you use the what they call the option key, which is basically the alt key. So I think I had it in my head that applications used option and the desktop itself uses the command key. And that is completely incorrect. Like, I don't know why I thought that, but that's how, as I was customizing my environment, in my head, I was somehow re-implementing this thing that I guess I had, I, I wanted on any computer. And when I implemented on Linux, I assumed I had brought it over from Mac OS. And no, I had not. It was completely new. It was something unique to how I wanted to use my computer. So I used the super key as a purely global keyboard shortcut trigger. So if it was super something, then that would work from anywhere. Doesn't matter what application I had open, could be anything from Blender to Emacs to Firefox, Dolphin, it doesn't matter. If super and then a key, then it's global. It's a desktop function. And then once I'm in applications, because of the nature of how applications are are, are arranged on all of these operating systems, then all of the keyboard shortcuts are control base, or I guess, I guess alt if you want to use alt to go into menus or something. I still don't really know what alt is for. I, I, that's just a, once again, it's just one of those things where I don't, I never, I never sort of grew up doing that as a computer user, and so it's just never really clicked with me. I, I just never quite gathered what that was for, so I, I can't quite wrap my head around, like, why someone might do that, but you could do that. I actually remap my um, my right-hand alt key to the compose key half the time, so I don't even use it for its intended purpose, but the left one I do, I probably use sometimes. I Well, I use it in Emacs a lot, but anyway, my point. My point was, Super key I'm using for one for the global and then control I'm using for application centric. And I love it. I think that's a fantastic idea. What's that got to do with key bindings dot whatever? Um, nothing really. Keybinder, keybinder is a, um, it's a keybinder application. So it does what I've just described except for GTK3 applications. Is it on the way out? Maybe. I mean, it is specifically for the X windowing system, which is on the way out. It was developed apparently for Tomboy. Tomboy is a note like a little sticky pad. Well, it's not really. It's like a personal wiki, really. I think I've, I've I think it's come up before on this show. Um I never I never used it, but 
it, it's a it is a it's a wiki kind a personal wiki kind of application where you can write and you can do special markup to then link yourself back to another note. Um, the KDE Notepad, like the the in in KDE PIM, it's kind of similar to to Tomboy in in theory. So this was a, a apparently created for Tomboy, probably because Tomboy would minimize to your system tray. Like if you didn't have a note out like and open, or I mean, I guess even if you did. You, you always had like this Tomboy menu up in your system tray. And I'm assuming that the developers of Tomboy probably thought, well, we want a way to trigger Tomboy actions from anywhere. And so we'll create this library called Keybinder where we'll be listening on the system constantly for a certain keyboard shortcut. And when that happens, we'll trigger a Tomboy uh, action. That's what I'm guessing. And it has since then kind of been used as just a general key binder for lots of other things because I mean Slackware certainly doesn't have Tomboy installed I don't think right surely not Tomboy no okay um I don't even think Tomboy it may not exist anymore it may have it may have thrown in the towel as they say um yeah and that maybe not I don't know it's got a it's got a page on gnome.org doesn't really mean anything I mean gedit has a page on gnome.org as well okay so anyway um, that's a library, Keybinder 3. It is GTK3, so it's, I, I imagine that, yeah, it's probably on the way out. It's probably, it probably, there's probably some equivalent out there up and coming. I think we can get through the Ks today in this episode. There's only one more after this, and then we're on L. So anyway, um, that's Keybinder. What was I going to say about it? Oh, yeah, and it's kind of interesting that, like, you don't necessarily think about it, but keyboard shortcuts... They require something to be sort of running in the background, listening for that exact combination of keys, like nonstop. And if you think about that, I mean, to our, you know, very sort of slow human brains, I think, we think that that just surely it would, it could miss a keyboard combination. Like, what if, what if I hit the keyboard shortcut that I want at the exact moment, you know, right, right after the listener has, has cycled has cycled over because it's a loop right so i mean it's gotta at some point it's gotta like there's gotta be a little break in that loop where it's resetting to the top of the loop or something and what if i hit the keyboard well that sure but i mean that's such an infinitesimal small amount of time but but there's so many things on a computer running that way like there are so many little loops happening on your computer at every moment like it's it's kind of astonishing whenever i'm programming and doing like some kind of gui application where you know i mean essentially a, a, a half the gui applications out there are essentially infinite loops right it's just like keep redrawing this screen until you get the quit signal like if you receive the signal to stop then stop but otherwise just keep looping around through this code i feel guilty about it because i feel i'm using up loops here like computers must only have so many loops and i'm using i'm using two of them I feel so guilty, and it feels so strange. But I mean, that's what computers do. It's really, really kind of astonishing if you think of it on just on that on that level of of just just one one process. All it's doing in this application is listening for a key press. That key press may never come. It's kind of sad. It might it, you you might go the whole day without pressing super D, and and so that 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 little listener has been listening for nothing. But it it's done it, and it's done it all the time, the whole time that the computer was on. That's the kind of stuff that these computers are capable of. I know that's not exactly the most impressive thing, but I mean it is it is kind of cool. Okay, so key utils is the next one, and this is a package containing tools. And 
and a wrapper library to control the Linux kernel key management facility and to provide a mechanism by which the kernel can call back to user space to get a key instantiated. The documentation, as far as I can tell, isn't super explicit about what kind of key we're even talking about. It's just key cuddle. Uh, so yeah, in the package, there's a binary called key cuddle. K-E-Y-C-T-L. So key CTL, key control, key cuddle, however you say it. Um, I've heard it said lots of different ways. I personally say it a lot of different ways. But today it's key cuddle and it doesn't tell you what exactly we're talking about. It's just like, you know, keys. This program is used to control the key management facility in various ways using a variety of subcommands. Um, the keys, <laughs> that's just, I, I, I kind of want that printed and posted. I want it framed. I mean, this program is used to control the key management facility in various ways using a variety of subcommands. That's amazing. That's an amazing description of a thing. That is a sentence containing many words about a specific thing. Uh, so it says that it lists a bunch of key identifiers. There's uh, no key is zero. Thread key ring is at T or dash one process keyring is at P or dash two session keyring is at S or dash three user specific keyring is at U or dash four user default session keyring is at US or dash five group specific at G uh, assumed request key authorization at A. Uh, you could also specify a keyring by a specific name, which is percent colon and then the name and so on. It goes on like that for a while. So in the end, you'll you'll kind of start to figure out from from various descriptions. You might start to figure out that what's what's being handled here are like encryption keys and things like that that the kernel needs to keep track of. So I don't really have a good use case for this myself because um, it's just not something that I've ever had to really kind of deal with. But you can you can at least do a list. So key cuddle k e y c t l at percent u the, that doesn't work because it's a key cuddle list. There we go. Key cuddle space list space. Uh, what was it at u was the what was that user right? I think. Is that the user specific one? I think so. So that one comes up as um, 102.126043. Hopefully I didn't give some important cryptographic information away there. Dash dash ALSWRV and then my uh, user ID, let's call it a thousand. And then a hundred key ring colon underscore KRB. Of course we can do at S was the session one, right? So there's one key there as well. It's got a lot of information in it. I mean... It's just a bunch of numbers mostly, and that's good. You can do other things like create your own key rings. You can store keys in a key ring. So if you if you find a key ring that you that that is active on your system, or if you've created one, you can do a key cuddle add, and then the the thing that you want to add to the key ring. You can look at the contents of a key with like key cuddle key cuddle pipe. And then the key name, or key cuddle read, and the key name. Not a command I anticipate using often or ever, but I, I'll bet some people find it super, super useful. Because, like, if you're trying to write an application that needs to be aware of one of these keys, and it's not working, or you just need to know a little bit more, being able to just use key cuddle to get information about what the kernel has, what the key ring contains, 
Maybe you've generated a key and put it into the keyring. How can you be sure that what you think you put into the keyring is what you put into the keyring? Well, with KeyCuddle, like I say, you can just read the key with read or pipe. So you can see exactly what you're what you think your application is doing. I I can imagine that it would be very, very useful for a certain set of people. That's all the Ks. That's the good news. The other news, I'm not going to say it's bad news, but the other news related to that is that the next section is L. And keep in mind that we're in the L package set, the library package set. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of L's in this software series. There's just lib, 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 lots of them. Not as many, maybe, as as I would have thought. I mean, honestly, there there's a lot more in this directory than just lib this, lib that. But there is, just prepare yourself, we're going to be in the lib this and lib that for a little while. But I'm going to try to mix it up with uh, interesting anecdotes and listener feedback and stuff like that. So if you're a listener and you want to send in feedback, now's a good time because, oh my gosh, we are going to have so many libs to get through. We may as well sprinkle in some amusing, fun stories just to break it all up. And eventually we'll get through it into the M section. For this week, we're done. That's it. That's this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Something in the air is wrong. Maybe it's because there's no sound.